0: Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Uh, Just a few things before we jump in. This one is special. Rick is... Nothing short of a legend in the outdoor adventure community, in uh, conservation community. And so we're, we're kind of taking a different approach here. Rick recently released a book about his life, uh, Life Lived Wild, Adventures at the Edge of the Map. Um, so you, you see this title and think, okay, you know, Life Lived Wild, you know, that, that could be the name of any book written by any person on this show. A lot of them live a wild life. But Rick is, I mean, it's on another level. He was a part of the team. To first climb Summit K2, American team to Summit K2, the second highest mountain in the world. He's done dozens and dozens of adventures all around the world that we're going to talk about today. He was there at the beginning of of the founding of Patagonia and the North Face with folks like Yvonne Chouinard, uh, Doug Tompkins. Uh, He helped Jimmy Chin get his film career started. So this guy has just had his hands in some of the biggest and most important moments of adventure history uh, and conservation history. So he has done so much. He's got a, a National Geographic Lifetime Achievement in Adventure Award and is on the board of countless organizations that make important decisions about conservation. Uh, of places probably close to you. So it's an honor to talk to Rick. I honestly don't think (laughs) we even... We barely scratched the surface of his story, and I will say this book is one that my three-year-old son can't put down because, well, there's a few pictures in it, so that helps, but because uh, the three-year-old can't really read. It is going to be one of those books that I'm reading to my kids as they get older. It's going to be one of those really important things that we kind of have in the house and things I reference. The stories are unbelievable. Uh, The moments of history, like I said, are just unreal that Rick has witnessed. So it was a huge pleasure to talk to him, and I I hope to do it again soon. So enjoy the stories, enjoy the conversation, and let's jump in. Welcome to the show.
1: You're welcome, Mason. Great to talk to you guys, too. And, um, you know, I... I suppose that my qualification now is in the category of uh, adventure geezer. <laughs> now that I'm in my 70s, but uh, it's a pleasure to be with you guys. And um, if I'm foundational, I'll, I'll take it.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Well, well, let me let me ask you this: uh, You grew up in California, but tell me about tell me about growing up. I, I know you've been interviewed a million times. I'm going to try to ask questions a little bit in a unique way. But you you talked about. Being aware, at least growing up, of development and overdevelopment, and wanting to escape that—was that just always part of your experience in the outdoors? Of understanding that, you know, there's a battleground almost between preserving land and uh, enjoying it.
1: Yeah, I grew up in in California, where I did witness the development of the southern part of the state, especially. Uh, but that, but as a young uh, boy, I also was witness to some of the wilderness in the state, and, and that was my initial connection. So I uh, initially grew up in the southern part of California, outside of Los Angeles, in Orange County, when Orange County was mostly rural. And I grew up with my buddies, you know, hunting with my single-shot twenty two in the Santa Ana Riverbed, which back in the late 50s and early 60s, still wasn't channelized. But then my family separated. My father left my mother and went to Northern California. And initially, I followed him and lived near Lake Tahoe, where uh, I had as a backyard, uh, thousands of acres of undeveloped uh, forest. And I roamed widely through there. And with uh, some of my friends I made in the northern part of the state, I I even started to uh, hike and climb up lower mountains. That was one of the origins of my initial interest in mountaineering. But then I moved back to rejoin my mother for my last two years in high school. And just in the short three years I had been away in the northern part of the state, the southern part of the state had literally been uh, bulldozed and paved over, at least uh, the areas in Orange County where I had previously grew up. And so... I was shocked. The the playground I had in the Santa Ana Riverbed was gone. The little ranchette that we owned had been turned into a storage yard for a construction company. The whole place was destroyed, at least in, through my eyes as a young, as a high school kid. And I started dishing school and driving my Honda 90 motor scooter up to the mountains surrounding the Los Angeles Basin and on my own, started hiking and climbing up Baldy and San Gregonio, the peaks around the LA basin. Uh, And that cemented my interest in mountaineering. Uh, And it also was the beginning of my awareness of what the loss of wilderness and nature really feels like when you experience it directly, like I did as a kid. And, And that's what formed both my commitment to conservation and my passion for mountaineering
0: how early so, so it, it sounds like the two passions grew together not one before the other because what what I what I see a lot with young athletes and people who love the outdoors is they see it they enjoy it, it happens with me too and then then you realize later that oh my gosh these places are uh, threatened and they need protection and you become an advocate later on but for you it seems to Kind of have coexisted from day one.
1: Well, the the origins of my twin passions for conservation and mountaineering, uh, they had the same roots, but they didn't evolve in exactly the same parallel way. Because uh, soon on I the my passion for mountaineering um, sort of eclipsed my um, the pain I had felt seeing. The wilderness in my childhood backyard disappeared, but it was still there. But this uh, obsession with climbing and mountaineering re- really took over. <clears throat> and in the, uh, in my 20s and, and 30s, early 30s anyway, uh, the uh, passion for uh, the expeditions, uh, the people I was going with, and especially the places I was going to was what it was all about. And it took time uh, over my, the course of my lifetime for uh, that focus to begin to shift over time to from uh, the adventures and the places I was doing the adventures to saving the places I was doing the adventures. So it it, it would be an, an oversimplification to say they evolved at the you know at the same time, but but over. Over the course of my lifetime, over the decades, as I started to witness the continued degradation of of wild places and nature that I had first seen as a, a young man, and I had first felt the pain of that, as that pain continued through the decades, then so did my shift in my, in my commitment to doing something about it. And that shift really started to gain steam and take root in uh, the later part of my 30s through my 40s. Right up until now, uh, I'm in my early 70s. And, and every decade, it seems to have only gotten stronger.
0: Man, well, Rick, I, I don't mean to make this personal, but I, I'm in my early... Th- I just turned 31 and two young kids. And I just see so much when I was reading your book of like, wow, this is, this is where I am too. And I find it difficult sometimes to enjoy myself out there knowing that there's developers... Foaming at the mouth to get their hands on this land, you know what I mean. It's In a particular place, I may be enjoying, and how do you balance that? Enjoying the place, but knowing knowing that it can change. Having seen it firsthand with places you love from when you were a kid with your mom, going to live with your dad, and coming back and seeing a change. How do you balance that?
1: Well, again, it's a it's a balance that has it, the the balance itself has has shifted. So um, I don't know if balance is even the right word but there's these two sometimes competing obsessions or commitments to the expeditions and the adventures and actually doing it to instead using your time to uh, commit to whatever you have to offer to conserving those places to protecting them Um, and so that is the trade-off of you know it just gets down to how you're going to use your time and uh, as I get older that shift towards using more of my time towards the conservation part, you know, has continued to evolve throughout my lifetime. But all of it has its origins in the time all of us have spent in nature, in in the wild. Uh, So that underlies everything. Uh, You know, and if when you're younger, like you are, Mason, and you're using more of your time, as I know most of the listeners probably are, actually doing the adventures uh, instead of maybe using your time to volunteer or doing whatever you can with whatever skills you have to conserve the places where you're doing adventures. Well, well, that's okay, and that's cool, too. But I predict uh, that you, uh, with your interest, and probably most of the listeners right now, will probably think, uh, discover the same thing in their lives I have with mine, that that as you get older, the commitments to saving these places seems to only grow stronger and stronger. Uh, so that's the the shift over time. Uh, in, in my experience and, and I, predict, I I suspect it's, it's going to be similar with a, a, a lot of your listeners uh, tuning in right now.
0: Oh, that's very interesting to hear. Do you think it's younger generations are maybe experiencing that feeling younger or at a younger age now with maybe awareness or just uh, knowing that you know you can make a change?
1: Well, I think younger people are certainly feeling it more acutely than I did in, in my youth. Um, and maybe where it took me a couple of decades to really complete that conversion to just the adventures and the, and the play, and the, and the people I was going with, the sports, as it were, to saving the places where I'm having the adventures and doing the sports. That, that conversion is probably going to happen quicker than it did with me, just because all of you guys and your generation are feeling it so much more truly. And you're seeing it now as we're all seeing it. <clears throat> As an existential uh, challenge and, and that wasn't obvious, uh, to me, uh, certainly in my youth. I didn't see it as a, a, a possibility of not just ending the, the, the sports and the adventures because there's no more place to, to do them, but, but of actually seeing changes so acute that it even threatens our well-being for all of us, for all human beings. You know, that, that was not evident when I was in my twenties, but I tell you, it did start to, I did start to see that in my thirties and especially in my, my forties. And I was fortunate to have uh, mentors and teachers and guides helping me uh, with the uh, clarity of vision uh, over what was really happening that started with me uh, in the late eighties and early nineties when I first started to get my handle, my, my head around the, the, the true impact of climate change and uh, teachers and mentors for me, my climbing partners, especially Yvonne Schrenard and and Doug Tompkins. Those two guys were my main, uh, you know, my main teachers who helped me see the gravity of the situation that was unfolding. Uh, And they helped me see that, uh, you know, three decades ago.
0: What do you think it is about those two that did something so impactful all, pretty much at the same time, you know, through the North Face in Patagonia, what are the chances or was it based on their circumstances that that was going to be the outcome? They were going to make that kind of big impact. You were there with a lot of that. You were there with that first uh, bus trip down to Patagonia and just around all that. What did you see in them that maybe was different than some of the other people around?
1: Well, it was especially different in, in Doug Tompkins who had the intellectual curiosity to uh, start digging deep uh, into the real, as I called it a minute ago, the, the, the existential threat that, um, that, that we human beings were so changing, uh, nature on, uh, planet Earth, uh, that we were jeopardizing our own species well-being and, and that of all the brethren wildlife we have around us. You know, he, Doug was able to, uh, start sensing that kind of before any of us. Uh, you know, he could, as I said in my book, uh, see a little further over the horizon line than the rest of us he, even more than Yvonne
0: he was a little taller too right yeah maybe that helped. <laughs> a little
1: bit yeah maybe and he's always hiking faster he's always the guy out in front heading towards that horizon line in front of all of us but uh you know the the, uh, the origins of Doug's awareness go back to the early 70s when he started running into some of the uh, thinkers and philosophers uh, that collectively were known as the Club of Rome, where in the early 70s, those guys, those macro macroeconom- economists started to really see the long term consequences of um, too many people on a planet uh, using too much of that planet's limited resources. And and they were they they were able to start to project out into the future what the ultimate consequences of that. Might be, uh, including uh, getting uh, into their eyesight the twin interconnected crises of climate change and extinction. So even that early, these guys were starting to see what might happen, and Doug was really paying attention to them and learning from them, uh, and that led to him uh, making a deep intellectual inquiry into into what was really going on, beginning in the late 70s and especially through the 80s. So as I started hanging out with him and going on climbs with with he and Yvonne. Uh, Doug would always show up with a, a list of new books for me to read and articles to reference. In our campfire conversations, uh, inevitably would uh, end up talking about uh, the climate crisis and the extinction crisis and uh, what the consequences long term might be and what any of us could do to do something about it. So, those were our campfire conversations, and that was the—that was more than anything where my own commitment to doing what I could about these crises uh, had its origin.
0: What were the solutions around the campfire back then, and were those solutions what happened, or have those evolved to uh, what do you what what you're trying to do today? If that makes sense.
1: Yeah, well, there you know, Yvonne showed his leadership thinking because at an a really early date, he started to realize that uh, the solutions are with us and not with our governments. Like both he and Doug could see that uh, if we depended on government, we are all going to go over the collective cliff together. But rather, we as individuals had to do something about this. And as Yvonne said way back then, that means you have to have the self-awareness to know what you're good at. And if you're a writer, you got to write about it. And if you're a good speaker, get out and voice uh, uh, awareness about what's happening. If you got a lot of money, uh, become a philanthropist. And if you got time, volunteer. But whatever you've got and whatever you're good at, you got to do something. because the core of activists is act. And if we as individuals don't act, then we're not going to find the solutions. To the existential challenge we're all facing, so that's what I learned from those two guys, and and they they articulated that really early on. We're talking about forty years ago.
0: Forty years ago, sitting around a campfire with, you know, just what what a crew that's unbelievable. Well, well let me tell you this: we haven't even talked about your book or anything, but I'd love to know: is there an adventure? or one of the expeditions that you went on uh, that you mentioned in the book, I know you went on dozens of huge expeditions. Some are more well-known than others. Is there one that you don't often get to talk about that, that maybe sticks out in your mind a little more, or maybe there's a particular lesson you learned on it that was a little unique?
1: Well, the one expedition in the book that um, I'm most proud of the one that, that, meant more than than the others <clears throat> was uh, one I do talk about quite a bit. And that's the trip in 2002 to the extreme northwest corner of the Tibetan plateau with Conrad Anker and Galen Rowland and, and Jimmy Chin. When the four of us used our mountaineering skills uh, as well as our tenacity uh, and kind of commitment to, you know, a tough a tough goal to follow the migration of an endangered species of uh, goat antelope called the shiru across the totally unexplored section of the Tibetan plateau to discover their calving grounds, so that we could document it and bring awareness to the world of the plight of these animals where elsewhere in the range they were being poached to near extinction for their underwool that was being woven into shawls that had become fashion hits in Milan and New York and Paris. So uh, wildlife biologists had, had never been able to find out where those calving grounds were for sure and document them. Uh, and they knew if the poachers got there first, it was game over for these animals. So, you know, I had the idea to get some of my mountaineering buddies and see if we could actually follow them on foot uh, so that they would guide us to the calving grounds. But it was going to be a long ways. It, it was going to be about a 300 mile uh, trek across this uninhabited and unexplored section of Tibet. And you can't carry enough supplies in your backpack. Like we, with you know, there we knew that there could be two or three or four days between water, for example. So we're always going to have to carry water. We had to have media gear with us because the goal was to document the cabin grounds. And and you added it up, and it was going to be two hundred and fifty to three hundred pounds per person. You can't carry that in a backpack. So I had this idea to maybe build rickshaws and and carts, hand carts, like the mormons did crossing the great plains and and that's what we did we got backing from national geographic and we went out to where um the main um biologist studying these animals george schaller had told us that migration tends to coalesce and and we got out there we we had to drive a thousand miles off road just to get to the beginning of the trek way beyond the last village and uh, we assembled these carts and the truck left us out in the middle of nowhere like we cut the cord big time. Pretty soon we fell in line with the migrating animals and we followed them uh, to their calving grounds. We documented it We discovered where it was uh, on the south side of the Kunlun Mountains in a completely uninhabited area. And we brought back to the world um, these uh, video and photographs and writings. We wrote an article for National Geographic. We made a television show for them. Uh, we wrote a book. Uh, We went on lecture series and uh, the scientists took all this back to the Chinese government and persuaded them to create a protected area around the calving grounds. We raised money through uh, Patagonia and some other companies to field patrols to support the Chinese and the Tibetans. And it worked. It turned back the poachers and those animals have been increasing. And that to me was like the most fulfilling expedition I've ever been on because it wasn't just about us. You know, getting to the top of some peak and you know waving our ice axes up and becoming heroes. You know, it was the opposite of that. It was us using our mountaineering skills to try to save this species, and it worked. It was so gratifying. Um, we got back from that trip, and I remember Galen telling me that you know, I've been doing this all my life. I've been on dozens and dozens of adventures all over the world on the highest peaks, and I got to tell you, Rick, this was definitely the best one of all the most fulfilling of my career. And as you may know, you know, Galen died in a plane crash three weeks later. And it was as tragic as it was to lose him, still gratifying to know that I had been with him on what he considered and all of us did, the most fulfilling trip of our lives.
0: Wow. Unbelievable story. The fulfillment of it is so interesting because I, I feel like it's, you know, I personally, my most, the, the trips I look back on with the most, uh, yeah, the most fulfillment, the most gratitude are not the ones I maybe expected that going in. And it's the ones where I wasn't completely focused on my own, uh you know, my my own mission or my own goals. It was something bigger than myself. How did you... How did y'all even find out you could use these skills to do good? Where was that coming from? And how were you able to say, hey, we can help? Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, it's also interconnected nation. And these are stories I tell in my book. But uh, to answer this question, um, I have to go all the way back to 1980s on an expedition I shared with Yvonne Chouinard and another close friend, Jonathan Wright, who was not just my climbing partner, but. A business partner. He and I were a writer, photographer team for National Geographic, and uh, we were on the first uh, American uh, expedition allowed into the People's Republic of China when um, the PRC opened in uh, 1980 to outside international mountaineers, and we were going to attempt the third ascent of uh, Minya in the eastern margin of the Tibetan Plateau, but. Uh, coming back from establishing our camp one position at about 21 20,000 feet um yvonne and jonathan and i and another of our friends kim schmitz we uh triggered an avalanche um and it broke out uh a point break avalanche broke out from under our feet and swept us down the side of the mountain about 1500 vertical feet and we were all injured uh but uh that Jonathan was uh, most grievously injured and, uh, I tried to keep him alive, holding him in my arms, breathing into his mouth, giving mouth to mouth. But after a half hour, he died and we, uh, we buried him on the side of the mountain, uh, where he, next to where, where he had died and went home. Uh, and I wasn't sure I was going to even go back to mountaineering after that. It wasn't just losing Jonathan, but nearly dying myself i had to really think through the rewards versus
0: the risks and were you a parent at this point
1: no not yet um but i did decide to um honor a request that jonathan's family and his wife made to complete an article jonathan and i had partially done for national geographic on what then was the the, the, just the newly chartered uh, Mount Everest National Park in Nepal. We, uh, Jonathan, had already taken quite a few of the photographs. He and I, after the Minya Conca trip, were supposed to go there to finish the article. And so, at his wife's request, I did. I went back for her, for Jonathan's parents, and 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 also for Jonathan's one-year-old baby that he left behind, baby daughter, uh, knowing that the article might be important to her someday. Uh, and on that trip, uh, in Kathmandu is I met my future wife in the lobby at the Yak and Yeti Hotel where I saw her in the lobby and we we got to know each other. And that eventually led to, to me proposing and her accepting my hand in marriage. Another story I tell in the book, but, but I also kept track over the years of uh, Jonathan's daughter, Asia. Uh, and then when she turned 20, she came out to work as an intern for me in, in patagonia and uh I, and she stayed with my wife and me and our daughters our kids uh, who were of a similar age and at the end of that summer uh, asia said she wanted to talk to me and and i knew that she wanted to know more about how her father had died because after he died his her mother had shut him out of their lives so we sat on my veranda and i told her about the avalanche about his death and i didn't hold back the details uh but then when i finished she said that's not really what i want to talk about and that surprised me she said i i have a favor i want you to take me to minyakonka and i want to climb up the side of the mountain and i want to find my father's grave And I didn't tell her yes. I told her I needed to go talk to my wife about it. And my wife, Jennifer said, well, of course you're going because Asia's not asking you to find her father. She's asking you to be her father. So I knew that had Jonathan lived, he would have taken his daughter Asia on some of his adventures, just like I took my kids. And I knew that those adventures would be to Asia, the place. And, and I knew that they would likely also include climbing and exploring and and real adventuring. So instead of just taking her to Minyakonka to find her father's grave, if it was still there, if I could find it all those years later, I decided I would take her on an extended adventure like her father would have done. And uh, I thought, you know, I should try and climb a peak with this young woman as well because that's what Jonathan would have wanted me to do. But then the thought of trying to attempt a peak that had any kind of avalanche danger just sent chills up my spine. So I asked myself, where in Asia could I find a mountain that would be a real adventure to attempt, that would be completely safe from any avalanche conditions? And I knew that that dry area out in northwestern Tibet uh, had all those things. And the only person who had really been out there in the last hundred years and seen that area at all was the wildlife biologist George Schaller. So I got a hold of George. I didn't know him, but he invited me to his office and he rolled out the maps and, and he had a range of peaks called the Aru uh, Crystal Mountains, he called them. Uh, and he said, these are just fabulous peaks. Nobody's ever been in that range. It's completely unexplored. Nobody's set foot up in the mountains themselves. And they're all 20 to 21,000 feet high. The weather conditions are stable in the summer. So he helped me uh, plan a trip to take Asia to the Crystal Mountains, where the two of us, she and I, made the first ascent of a 21,000-foot peak unnamed in a place that was completely uninhabited. And through that expedition and that trip with Asia, I learned from George about the plight of the Chiru and how he had been unable to find and discover the calving grounds and how if, if the poachers got their first uh, he knew it would very likely be game over for zo- those animals. So you see, this is a very long answer to your question, Mason, about <laughs> about how uh, I got the idea to um, invite some of my mountaineering friends to follow the migration of these animals and see what we could do with our skills to help save them. But you see how interconnected all these things are. Um, if there's anything uh, in this, perhaps. Uh, for your listeners to, to learn from, I guess it's a couple things. Uh, as I said previously, it's to, you know, do what you can with your skills, to try to make a difference, uh, in, uh, saving the wild part of the planet. But the other little lesson in here is to learn how to always keep your antenna up for new ideas and interesting things you might be able to do because, you know, me listening to George, tell me about the plight of the chiru you know, it was in the back of my head. I thought, oh, you know, maybe we could just follow those guys on foot. And George had said, no, you can't do that. You're going to have to carry two to 300 pounds of stuff and you can't backpack it that far. It's 300 miles to follow that migration, maybe a little less, maybe a little more. Nobody knows. Uh, and then still, I I had that there in my head. You know, it was always something I had been thinking about. You know, I told myself. You know, there's got to be a solution to this. And then maybe a year later, I was at the outdoor trade show in Salt Lake City um, before I had moved to Denver uh, back in the day when um, uh, it was in the Salt Palace. And I was at the Marriott Hotel waiting for a meeting, sitting in the lobby. And I spied across the lobby this statue of a Mormon family crossing the Great Plains. On their way to Utah in the 19th century. And I walked over and looked at it. And it was this bronze statue of uh, the, f- the, f- the father of the family pulling a rickshaw across the Great Plains with all their belongings in it, with the, ki- the kids and his wife following him. And I, I saw that and I went, That's it. <laughs> that's how we're going to cross the Chang Tang Plateau. That's how we're going to save the Kyrgyz. So, see, um, that's the lesson, I suppose. You've got to keep that antenna going. You've got to recognize an opportunity uh, when it's there. Uh, that's the definition of what most people kind of call
0: luck. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that helped make this show possible. One of the most formative things I did in my outdoor slash adventure career was to be a camp counselor. So a couple summers in college, I helped kids learn how to uh, to mountain bike, to climb, to, to to paddle, you know, canoe, all kinds of stuff. And it was one of the coolest experiences and gave me a lifelong love of uh, sharing these sports with people. And it honestly directly led to me hosting this podcast. And why that excites me so much is because Avid for Adventure reached out to us and said, hey, We have hundreds of summer camp counseling jobs, uh, seasonal jobs all over the country, and we need your help filling them. So if you would like to spend your summer in the mountains teaching kids how to rock climb, mountain bike, hike, kayak, backpack, and everything else you can imagine uh, in places like California, Colorado, the, the Northeast, the Pacific Northwest, be out in the mountains, be out in the woods, be out on the water. If that's how you want to spend your summer and you want to make some money and you want to have access to healthcare and you want to work at one of Outside Magazine's best places to work, then you need to apply for one of these jobs with Avid for Adventure. All you got to do is go to avidfor.com/jobs the application is only five minutes, and even if you don't think it's a good fit for you, I promise that you know somebody who could fill one of these hundreds of roles that we need to fill this year. Again, that's avid4.com slash jobs. Fill out the five-minute application and tell them you heard about it through Adventure Sports Podcast. Let's go have the best summer of your life. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. You, you put the pieces together and, and over time, and I love that you, you had a young Jimmy Chin, famous Jimmy Chin you had on that expedition that after Conrad Anchor recommended him. And uh, there's a quote that you said that, that Jimmy said to himself, what did I do to deserve this, this opportunity? Mm-hmm. And then about a week into the trek, pulling that giant rickshaw over mountain passes and everything else, he asked himself again, What did I do to deserve this?
1: <laughs> <laughs> he did indeed. And that was he you know, we originally
0: David Brashears was coming with us and
1: then David had a conflict and had to drop out a professional conflict he couldn't resolve. And um and Conrad called me up and said, Hey, I just met this young kid named Jimmy Chin, who's a photographer and he's he's really really a fun guy to be with. He's got this big smile on his face. And I, I think he seems to be a pretty tough kid. We ought to invite him. And he was definitely the youngest of the lot of the four of, of the three of us. Uh, and I went on Conrad's recommendation. I called up Jimmy and he said, well, Rick, I've never made a movie before. I don't know anything about filmmaking. And I said, Jimmy, commit and then figure it out. <laughs> and that's something that I learned from Doug Tompkins. That was a, a phrase that Doug had above his desk at, um, a spree, the women's work company that he owned, it was a little sign right above his desk. And I had adopted that maxim into my own life. And, and it really helped me figure things out. You know, when I was hesitating to launch into a project because there were just too many unknowns, I just recalled what Doug sign above his desk said commit and then figure it out. So Jimmy now tells me that that's become sort of his maxim as well. And when he has faced uh, obstacles with his films, and uh, sometimes things seem insurmountable. Him, he just smiles and goes, "Oh, I remember, commit, and then figure it out." So it's worked for him as well. It's really a cool sense of um, gratification to me that you know I helped uh, Jimmy on his way, giving him his real first film job, and look what he did with that. Uh, I couldn't be more proud of him. And and you know, Nathan, on that. uh, on this theme uh, it's another one that I explore in the book uh, and that's this uh, idea of mentorship uh, and uh, what I consider the responsibility of all of us old goats to help guide the the younger generation with what we've learned uh, to inspire uh, people to uh, maybe learn from our examples uh, what they can uh, and apply to their own lives And, and so that's a that's really the, the, the theme of the book that I, I, that I hope I can best deliver to readers. That was my hope. Um, and I very carefully chose not to tell any reader of the book about the lessons I've taken from the high elevations and brought down to my life at sea level, but rather to show them how I did it so that they could understand what those experiences admit to me and and that way explore for themselves how they might take my experiences and apply them to their own lives, and how they might be inspired to most importantly go out there into what's left of the wild world and and have those experiences themselves
0: you and you talk about mentorship to you what what is the extent of mentorship because you know a lot of people we, we hear a lot you know you need a mentor, but that can be a really daunting thing to ask someone. You know, it's almost like, hey, you're. it's almost asking it like you want a date or something. It's kind of, it feels like a big commitment, but it, is it that way? Do you view it that way? And, and what? how often are you interacting with your mentees? And, and what is that? what does that look like in your experience?
1: Well, it has uh, many different forms. It can be um, just an email to a, a young woman or man, uh, trying to share your insights with them. Uh, sometimes that's challenging because a lot of times a young person will come to me and say, I want to be a photographer. How do I do it? And I just kind of put my hand on my head and go, oh, this, is, this is a tough one. And I, I explain to them, you know, it, it, there's nothing that simple. But rather, um, I try to talk about things like commit and then figure it out to offer to them uh, those uh, kinds of principles and guides uh, by which they have to live their lives. Uh, if their lives include an ambition like how to become an adventure photographer. Um, but then other opportunities to be a mentor are certainly, um, in addition to just emailing somebody. Um, I also often will arrange to meet somebody in person. It's been a little tough with COVID, of course, but, um, I, I love doing that. I, um, and it's not just, uh, with my, meeting with someone to talk about my life as an adventure, but I also do that with my life as a business person. I, I did that even last week with a young man who uh, has a startup apparel company. Um, and that's deeply satisfying to be able to to do that. But probably the most satisfying of all is when, like we did on that trip to Northwest Tibet, you have the opportunity to actually bring a young woman or man with you uh, so that they can really have the same experience, and you can have all those days together again, sitting around the fire in the tent, you know telling stories and sharing your own insights uh, in a deep way that you're always hopeful um, will land with that person and uh, help send them in the direction of their own ambitions and dreams
0: so that 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 experience was in two thousand and two when you uh rickshawed across Tibet. In 2004, you joined Patagonia. Now, what I was curious about was you were there from, you mentioned you were one of the folks just kind of hanging out with Yvonne and hanging out with that crew uh, in the early days of Patagonia. What took you so long to join officially? I know you did contract work and whatnot, but what what was the reason you didn't jump on board right away? Was it to live this lifestyle or, or, or were you just busy doing other things?
1: Well, it's a little more complex than that, uh, yeah. And I met Yvonne in the early '70s. Uh, I was living down closer to Los Angeles than uh, in Malibu uh, with a surfer buddy. Uh, I was just hanging out there uh, because it was uh, in the northern part of Malibu, pretty, pretty cool place to for a surfer to be, and and it wasn't that far up to the high sierras to go climbing. But I had met Yvonne. He lived up in Ventura, uh, an hour north. And uh, there are a series of islands uh, off the coast of that part of California called the Channel Islands. And those islands block swells that uh, come down from the northwest uh, so that uh, the Malibu is in the uh, swell shadow of the Channel Islands during the winter swells. Uh, But then uh, during the summer, when the swells come from the opposite direction, Ventura's in the the swell shadow of the Channel Islands. So they have alternating surfing seasons. So pretty soon after I got to know Yvonne, I was going up to his place in the winter to go surfing, and he was coming down to my place in the summer to go surfing. Uh, And that eventually led to a friendship where we started then going up to the mountains together to climb together. But then in the late 70s, I'd had it with malibu uh it was just too many people that were posing there were too many people pretending to be somebody else <laughs> they were actually making their living there that way you know as as actors I, anyway that they weren't my people right, right. so Yv- yvonne found a place for me up right near him and i moved up there in the late 70s to ventura uh and <clears throat> so all during the the 70s from the early 70s until i moved up to ventura i had been hanging out at shinardi equipment uh, and it's very fledgling clothing line patagonia and i got to know all those people and I, I started doing a few odd jobs for them uh in marketing taking photographs and writing copy for uh ads and then when i moved up there um my uh, work with them increased and then soon I married uh, Jennifer I met Kathmandu in 1981 going back there to write that National Geographic article I mentioned earlier and then after we married she moved in with me Uh, we started our family Uh, she had been in the apparel business but in the high-end fashion part of it all her life and uh, and she was a worker she wanted a job so I introduced her to uh, Chris McDivitt who was the CEO of uh, Yvonne's company <clears throat> and they hit it off and Chris hired my wife to uh, set up the marketing department at Patagonia with with one other woman, Kathy Metcalf. And <clears throat> so my wife started hiring me to take the photographs and write the copy. <laughs> and, and And I was working for her, but only as one of my clients. And so I had started a photography agency myself representing A lot of outdoor adventure photographers and filmmakers, like 160 altogether in the stable of the small company I had. So I was busy with my own company, uh, and Patagonia was one of my main clients. And then because I was still working for the company on a contract basis and because my wife was working there full time, we were intimately part of the company. So – then my wife retired in uh, the early aughts and I sold my company at the same time. And so I thought I would refocus on writing and photography and filmmaking uh, as the way I was going to make my living moving forward. Uh, and that's when Patagonia reached out to me and, and offered me a job overseeing their um Environmental initiatives globally, uh, and that was intriguing because it was such a integral part of the company. It was really why they were in business. Uh, but I was cautious to work for one of my best friends' companies. Uh, you know, I asked myself, what if in that work I got crosswise with Yvonne? Uh, would I regret regret accepting the offer to to take this job and I went to my wife uh, and asked her what she thought. And she said, Well, you know, Rick, you always tell me you like to try new things. So why don't you try this thing called having a regular job? And <laughs> she prevailed and I accepted the job. And I was there for 15 years. I just retired two years ago. So between my early contract work, my friendship with Vaughn in the early 70s, uh, my uh, hanging around the company, uh, even as Patagonia was uh, chartered in 1973, uh, all the way through my wife's tenure, her retirement, my tenure. Between that, we, we've we been there uh, at the company, uh, closely involved for its near 50-year existence.
0: Oh, man, there's, there's so much I could ask you about there. Just with what it was like. I mean, I've, we've all, m- many of us have read, you know, let my people go surfing and just, uh, I, I work for a company that has modeled itself very much off of uh, the culture at Patagonia. And, uh, it's, it's had an impact that's probably more than you you'll ever know. You know, you'll never know the extent of it just because it's, it's been so revolutionary, but d- were you aware that early on that this was different or was it something you look back on and say, yeah, we were, we were onto something
1: well we knew
0: it was different
1: there was no that that was very evident to all of us and and we used to pride ourselves on on that difference it it was such a quirky place and 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 we knew that there weren't very many companies out there that were just as quirky as we were i mean there were a few like ben and jerry's you know we were all really close buddies back then ben and jerry used to come out to the tour because like we had this quirkiness in common uh, but boy, there was nobody else out there. And um, but I don't think any of us, including Ben and Jerry, really had the the vision of where it might go uh, down the line. Yvonne did just a little bit, but I don't think even back in the 70s and even in the early 80s, uh, even he could see what what the potential might be. But the ingredients of the of the of the scaling success, you know, we're we're all laid and deeply embedded because while everybody was sort of really quirky and we, you know, we, uh, as Yvonne said, and let my people go surfing made up the rules ourselves. There were still some foundational commitments that looking back on it now were um, completely responsible for its success. And, and, and probably the, the most significant Ones and, and, and a couple of them that I didn't fully appreciate was Yvonne's commitment to quality above everything. Um, and to never accept a a product that wasn't just as good as his, he and his team could make it, even if it costs more. Uh, and he understood that right from the very beginning when he first hammered out that first piton in his parents' backyard. You know, he got that into his bones from his mentors like John Salafay. And that has been so responsible for Patagonia's success. And, and it's also the foundation of its environmental commitment because that quality product that is built to be as durable and long-lasting as possible over its lifetime is the product that has the lower footprint of a comparable product that is less durable and doesn't last as long. But then making that durable, most long-lasting product with the smallest footprint possible uh, on people and planet uh, is the other core principle. And, and those things together are the reason the company is so successful. And its deep commitment to that is its secret sauce. And, um, you know, as we progress through the 80s and into the 90s, we all started to realize more. Clearly and profoundly, uh, the importance of those twin commitments, and then we started to sense how we could perhaps really inspire uh, other businesses uh, with that awareness that that we understood by then uh, that was so clear to us uh, as the way any business should be run.
0: What then gives you, uh, you know, having seen from a a young age? the world changing development, taking over uh, channeling of riverways and waterways being involved with Patagonia so long, what gives you the most hope for the future of our planet? Is, is it the principles Patagonia has helped put in place or is it something else? Like what in particular, or what have you seen lately that, that, that gives you hope?
1: Well, I'm more optimistic than Yvonne is. Um, he's a doom bat.
0: Um, oh, is he? <laughs> yeah.
1: And, but I, I, I'm actually, my, I, I'm, I'm in some ways getting more hopeful of late, and the hope, uh, and my hope is linked to my involvement with a emerging uh, NGO called One Earth that um, I've been involved with since its founding, and I'm the chairman of the board of this uh, now somewhat small but quickly growing group. Uh, that has, uh, for the first uh, seven years of our existence, raised money and quite a bit of money, many millions of dollars, to uh, invest uh, in uh, supporting scientists around the world, dozens and dozens of them, uh, at a cost of tens of millions of dollars, to really do the deep science of how much and what kind of conversion of human beings' energy systems to renewables we need to make. And then secondly, how much of the planet's surface we need to safeguard as carbon sinks where nature can go about its business doing what it knows best how to do to sequester carbon. And then thirdly, how much of the planet's Food and fiber production systems need to be converted to regenerative protocols that increase the health of soil so that soil becomes a carbon sink, literally pulls carbon out of the air and puts it back in the ground where it used to be. We've, we've now nearly completed, uh, the science of, uh, what, how much you need to do in each of those three areas of energy, nature, and food to keep the planet at or below 1.5 degrees of warming, which is the red line. And we are just about finished with the last of that science, uh, which is the food and fiber part. We finished it with energy. We finished it with nature. It's it's published. Um, it's been uh, published and peer-reviewed in the leading scientific journals in the world. Some of the reports, one of them On energy is 500 pages long. Um, and we can do it. We are showing how, uh, we human beings can use existing technology in all three of those areas, uh, to scale existing technology to save the world, to save ourselves and all our wild brethren. We can do it. So now it's just a matter of convincing the planet the people, the governments, to get on board and get the job done. But um, because the solutions are increasingly clear, I still hold on with some optimism that we can get people aligned uh, to commit uh, and then, as I said before, figure out how to save the
0: world. So, Rick, it was these adventures that built this uh, passion for you, helped you see the world, helped to see what's out there. And that's one huge reason we ask people to live a more adventurous life and try to inspire them to do so on the show. Is there a story that didn't make the cut for the book? Something that that you could share with us that uh, you could tell in full that wouldn't be spoiling anything for the book but would give us a a kind of a flavor of what's in the book, if that makes sense.
1: (laughs) in the epilogue or the actually I think it's in the end in the credits at the book at the end, I explain how the book had its origin uh, when I was uh, in hanging out in a Santiago airport with Jimmy Chin and Timmy O'Neill where we'd been down in Patagonia together and we were on our way home. We had a long layover in the airport and I was telling those guys some of my stories um, specifically about K2 and how, Back in 1978, when we made the third ascent of K2, um, it was an old school expedition and, and we had 450 porters. And Jimmy went, 450 porters? What were they carrying? And I said, well, they, we had all this stuff, you know, it was going to take four or five months. Uh, we had to walk 110 miles each way to get to the base of the mountain. And uh, the ridge was super long that we were going to try. So we had, you know, over 300 porters to carry all of our stuff. And then we were going to be in an area that was uninhabited, and um, we had to have food for all these porters. So we needed another 80 porters to carry all the food. And then I said, then we realized we needed another 15 or 20 porters to carry food for the 80 porters who are carrying food for the guys carrying our gear. And they shook their head <laughs> and laughed, and and they said, dude, you got to have an Instagram account you know you got pictures i said sure so anyway by the time we were on our third beer and we got on the airplane i had an instagram account that kimmy and jimmy had set up for me and i started posting some of my old photos and uh telling a few of the stories and you know paragraphs and then my daughter uh who worked at patagonia as a editor that photo editor said dad you got to turn these into a book these are stories are so cool so that's how it started and when i got done writing the first draft of this thing there were like 50 stories but then it was a doorstop it was just too big to publish so i went into a pretty extensive editing process and half the stories hit the floor and uh i ended up with 25 stories uh but anyway some of those ones that hit the editor's floor i'm starting to put on my website at brickridgeway.com i have three of them up there now and in fact i just remember i should put another one up today uh and uh there's some pretty cool ones so to answer your question, uh, Mason, I think just point people to the website and check out some of the stories that didn't make it into the book.
0: If you don't mind, you seem to be in a phase of, of reflection and, and sharing with, with folks uh, uh, advice and being a, a mentor. If you could leave us with a, a word of advice on how to live a more adventurous life, that doesn't necessarily mean climbing Everest, but w- what does it mean to you to live a more adventurous life? And what do you encourage uh, folks out there to to do so who might not be on that trajectory right now?
1: The most important thing, Mason, for all of us is just to get out there into nature. And when we're in nature, to learn how to pay attention to nature. Because you have to really watch and listen and sense what's going on around you to really get from it uh, what it can offer and teach. I think the most profoundly important uh, teaching In wild nature uh, is to learn and to get into our bones the realization that all life depends on death that as soon as we're born the clock starts ticking and that all of us have that date on our calendars when we will leave the earth and we're going to be dead because again That is the way life has evolved. Life would not exist without death. And you can get that into your bones when you're out there in the wild world and you're watching carefully and you see how it really works. And then when you get that into your bones and when you learn to accept the fact that you're here for a very short amount of time, then pretty soon you learn best how to best use that time through really paying attention, really being there every day that you are alive and breathing to accept the fact that you will inevitably die. And when you integrate all those things into your bones deeply, then you gain this resilience. Resilience against setbacks. Resilience against disappointments. You can learn profoundly that even something like The pandemic is just a road bump. And you can all live, uh, all of us, more strongly and fully and all be more fulfilled with the choices that we make, with the experiences that we have, with the lives that we live.
0: First of all,